Last week I had the privilege, uh, Beth and I and our family did, of uh, watching our youngest daughter, Meredith, graduate uh, from Seattle Pacific University. So we were enjoying that celebration on Saturday. We were actually enjoying the temperature out there, too. It was like 30, 35 degrees cooler than in Kansas City. I enjoyed worship service on Sunday morning. I was live streaming, and I heard Nate preaching. He did a great job, didn't he? Good, good, good material. Yeah. So, so I have to tell you what happened. So yesterday, I'm just sitting on a park bench in Overland Park, minding my own business, having a gourmet hot dog at the Overland Park Farmer's Market, and uh, somebody drives by, rolls down their window, and says, Mark, looking forward to washing our car. <laughs> and I said, what? And he says, yeah, my wife got all four questions right. And what, what's going on? Yeah, Nate, I, I was live streaming, and I never heard Nate make that promise. Uh, and, then, and then I was walking down the hall this morning, and somebody comes up to me and says, Hey, Mark, so glad you're going to be waxing our car. And he said, My wife, oh no, he says, I got all three questions right. So, you know, I'm just not sure whether this is legit or not. Four questions, three questions, a car wash, uh, uh, a, a car wax. So I just want to know how many people in this room I'm obligated to. <laughs> so if you just raise your hand. That's good. And so you can line up in the parking lot afterwards. And Nate and I. <laughs> yeah, I, what Nate talked about last week was really helpful, I think, because he just talked about God's desire for us to be able to live a life that is not ordinary. Uh, that's what God calls us to. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. And that's what he wants for every single one of us. And one of the chief contributors to a life that doesn't get to that point is the desire of the evil one to wreak havoc in our lives, in our hopes, our expectations, our, our, our awareness of the reality that we have of life in Christ. And we want to talk more about what that looks like this morning as we get into our theme and get into our text this morning. But before we get into the text in Isaiah 61 that we'll be looking at, I just want to say a couple of things by way of review. We've talked about these. We hit one of them early on, the first week that we got together, and we talked about what is happiness like. And I'm, I'm hoping and, and praying that you're doing analysis in your life of where am I in regards to a sense of gladness and joy? Is it characterizing me? Am I becoming a happier, glad a person filled with rejoicing? And uh, we were reminded the first week of this reality. God wants us to, be, to live a life that is characterized by that gladness, by the joy that comes with it. In fact, and before we even get into what we're talking about this morning, we've got to be reminded of this. God wants everything he says to us, he says to us because he wants us to experience happiness. There's this amazing text, actually, in Deuteronomy. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 14. And in Deuteronomy chapter 14, God is giving instruction to his people, and he is telling them to take their tithe money. Now, if you're not familiar with that concept, God has called all of us as followers of Jesus to, off the top, take 10% as a baseline of the resources we have and to give them to God as for, for, whatever it is that, that, for whatever it is that God wants to do. 
I remember this as a kid. I got my first lawnmower job. My folks said, okay, pull the money out, Mark, and let me teach you about what 10% is. So I learned about percentage before a lot of kids my age did. And, and, and there it went to a place I was really feeling, boy, this sounds like a tax to me. You say, what is it that God is trying to do with my money? Uh, is this kind of just the, the requirement for being a Christian? But you see the character of God in Deuteronomy chapter 14. There's this fascinating couple of verses in there. Verses 25 and 26. Listen to what God tells these people to do with their tithe money. He says, for those of you that are a long ways away, and they were tithing sheep and goats and uh, animals in that time. It wasn't a currency, really. But they said, take that. If you're traveling a long ways, exchange it um, in, into silver. And so that really was the currency they had. In verse 25, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver. This is the tithe money, right? Use the silver to buy whatever you like. Cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. You see what he actually prescribes? Take your tithe money and have a party. I want you to know the character of your life and rejoice with it. And so go have a steak dinner and a strong drink. Did you see it? Strong drink. And he says, I want you to celebrate and be glad in the reality of a life lived connected with me. So if anyone ever tells you God doesn't want you to be happy, God doesn't want you to be filled with joy, he's actually saying, you know, part of that tithe money you have, once in a while, take it and throw a party because I want your life, your heart, to be filled with gladness and rejoicing. Some of you say, now that's a good reason to start tithing. It really is. It really is. He is the one that wants your life to be filled with joy. So that's the first thing, just by way of review. God is the one who is most intent, who is more intent on your life being filled with joy and gladness than anyone else with any power over your life. Second reality and reminder is this, is a life of greatest happiness will always be found in Christ. Now, we've talked about this also, but it's important to, as a preface to what we're saying this morning. A life of greatest happiness will always be found in context of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We've been talking about what's the difference between joy and happiness. And if I could reduce it to one sentence, I would say this. Joy is happiness undergirded by hope. Joy is happiness or gladness undergirded by hope. Happiness or gladness can be such a fleeting thing. It can actually be leveraged into a life filled with joy if it's undergirded by hope that keeps it alive. Joy is gladness undergirded by hope. And our hope is found in the one we just sang about, who is a good, good father to us, who loves us and cares us. And when we have that hope, 
And it's not just the hope that something might happen. It's the hope of a reality that we know what will happen because our Father walks with us through those situations. God wants us to be happy, and he wants us to know, too, the greatest happiness is found in our relationship with the Lord. So let's look at our text this morning. If you have your connect in front of you, I trust you've got those couple of verses from Isaiah 61. But I want to just back up a little bit, and I want to start in the section that this is composed of. Because those last couple of verses, actually, they're just the summation of a whole bunch of stuff that is written about. And we get to Isaiah 61, and we come to the conclusion of it. So uh, let's start with that passage in Isaiah 61. It's the one that's right in front of you. And then I'm going to just back up and show you the context for it. Our scripture reading this morning is Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 10. These are the words that we hear uh, from God. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. You see this gladness and rejoicing that is a part of the conclusion of everything he said until then. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow... So the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. That's quite a deal, isn't it? God's going to do this. Righteousness and praise throughout all of the peoples of the world is going to occur. And this theme of joy and rejoicing winds its way through all of this text. If you go back to chapter 54, in my translation, there's a little bit of a title sentence that's not scripture. It's just kind of a, just so you know where it's heading piece of it. But the just so you know where it's heading in Isaiah 54 starts with this. The future glory of Zion. And the future glory of Zion is a glory that's filled with rejoicing and gladness. But it's also filled with rejoicing and gladness that comes in the context of what Zion does for all of the nations of the world. And it is littered with these statements of joyfulness and exuberance. We see it in 55, verse 12. Listen to this. You, go, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and the trees of the field will clap their hand. You go to chapter 57, in verse 18, and we read these words. I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to them creating praise on the lips of mourners. That's what he wants to do. Remember we said God's intention is to fill us with joy, and this is what he wants to do. We go to chapter 58. We read the last, the last verse of 58, and we read this. Then you will find joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast in the inheritance of your father Jacob. God wants joy and rejoicing to characterize us. And we go on a little further. In chapter 60, we read this. Then you will look and be radiant, and your heart will throb and swell with joy. What's God after? <laughs> That's what he wants for us. For our hearts to throb and swell with joy. So how does that happen? We've talked about a number of aspects of this in the past number of weeks. But there's an aspect of it that cannot be missed. And it's right in this context. And it is this. It is that joy and happiness is found in a life that is filled with purpose and mission. 
It's, a, it's an element of us experiencing. It's not just the party. It's a life filled with purpose. And through these chapters, over and over again, God is inviting us as his people into a life of purpose. Let me tell you how important that is. Beth and I were with an Uber driver. Simon, his name was. I'm guessing about 48 years old. British accent. Had been in the United States since he was 18. He said, I love horses. And I love racehorses. And I love working in that whole community. And so I left England when I was a kid. And I moved to Kentucky where there are racehorses. And he said, I had a career for 28 years working in the racehorse community, and I absolutely loved it. Well, he's not in Kentucky anymore, and he's driving Uber to make ends meet because his life has just completely crashed. And as we were talking to him, he pulled out a book, and I think I might have mentioned to this, it's Search of Meaning. Um, and it's a story of a, of a man who walked through the, the uh, consecration, uh, concentration camps, the genocide camps during World War II, where so many Jews were absolutely slaughtered. But Weasel talks about uh, the, the, the quest for meaning even in that, in that setting. And in the, book, um, in the book, he talks about what the... Uh, what the um, those who were imprisoning them were doing to them. And he would take these convicts, well, I guess they're not con- prisoners, and would ask them to move a pile of rubble from one part of the concentration camp to another. And they did that. And there was kind of a sense of purpose in it. I mean, crazy, but you had something to do, and there was an objective in mind. And then after they had accomplished that, the cap captors said, okay, now we want you to take that pile of rubble and we want you to move it back. And all that sense of purpose and I've at least got a reason to live just eroded as they had them move piles of rubble from one place to another and there was no meaning in it. And he became a prominent psychiatrist and reminded the world that if a human being doesn't have a sense of purpose. I'm going to use my energies for something that matters. It just absolutely destroys them. And so he passed this book back to us and he said, you know what I've discovered here? I've discovered everyone needs a why. And I said, Simon, what's your why? And he said, getting back to work, finding something meaningful again. Now, you know, we can write that off as superficial. You should find your meaning and significance and your identity, and that's true. But God also made this sense in us of a desire to have something happen in our life that is purposeful, right? We all want it because that's the way God made us to be. So the invitation this morning is this. If I'm going to get to a life characterized by gladness and joy, I will want to take the labors, the efforts of my life and apply them towards something that brings gladness and joy, right? So there are three pieces of this that I want to just walk into here this morning. The first is this. God calls us with the energies of our life to be characterized by those who restore communities. God calls us to be those that restore communities. 
Now, what's a community? There are a couple of places that are mentioned here in these chapters in Isaiah. They're talking about places around them, but a community is where you live. And you might live in a neighborhood, and that's where your sphere of influence is. It might be on campus. It might be at school. It is at school. That is a community, you guys. And you know it. What is it like? What is your community of friends and, 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 and classmates? What is that community like? on the soccer field or whatever. What is that community like? Those of you that are in business, what is that community like and the reach of that community? What does it look like? Do you see anything broken there? Is there anything that is... You you might even say, you know, it's even hard to walk into that place. I, I can't wait to get in my car and drive away. And yet, God talks about those places as places that matter, and he invites us to be part of it. He talks to, he invites us into it, and to be involved in changing the place. In Isaiah 58, verse 11, we read this, The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land, and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose water never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations and will be called repairers of broken walls, restorers of streets with dwellings. That's what he's inviting us into, to be a part of changing the environment we're in, the place we're in. I mean, we all know how much, how much joy is found in helping someone, God is calling us to be sophisticated and thoughtful in regards to that. In fact, there was a person who said, you know, think of it this way. We're by the edge of a river, and we see these people floating down the river on debris and near dead, and our objective is to somehow rescue them, to wade out into the water, to throw a rope or something like that and bring them in because they're dying. And just the the gratification that comes from, wow, I saved another life. He says, but at some point in time, our objective shouldn't simply be to throw a lifeline to those people who are drowning, but to walk upriver and figure out why they're actually falling into the river at all. And that's what God has called us to as well. He's not only save people when they're in trouble, but to look at the systems, the environment, the things in a place, why are they even falling in the water at all? Why are my friends characterized by addiction that they can't get out of? Why is this person struggling to find a a, a place to work? You know, those are parts of what God is calling us to as well. And there's a sense of purposefulness that's in those things. Paul Borthwick, in a book where he talks about the role that we have around in the world, is this. He's gone to many places in the world. He was talking to a gentleman in Sri Lanka And he said, you know, what is it that you want Christians to do? You know, there's all of this trade in clothing and textiles, and basically people are working for for peanuts in these places in the world. Should we protest those groups? And, you know, we've heard about them. Boycott so-and-so and and -and so-and-such. They have unfair practices. Don't do that. Don't do that. Here's what you do. Instead of boycotting something, start working for Nike, he said. Become a part become a part of a business that can actually change things. And here's an example that he gave. There's one person who heard him speaking someplace, I think it was in New York City. 
And he was talking about the need for us to think about what's happening in the lives of other people. And there was a guy there who actually had a business buying jeans from a place in Madagascar. Here was the profit margin. They would buy jeans for a dollar because it was so cheap. Uh, Labor was so cheap in Madagascar. And they would sell them. He would sell them on Fifth Avenue in New York for $400. That's a pretty nice profit margin, isn't it? But after he heard Paul speak, he said, you know, I want to think about what I might be able to do with that. So he went back to the people that he purchased from, and he says, I'd like you to recalculate some things here. What would it cost for those laborers that are buying those jeans that I'm, they're building those jeans that I'm purchasing, what would it cost for the people that are doing it to actually have better health conditions, to have a, a, a job that would allow their kids to be able to go to school, there are a couple of other things. Just calculate that in to the cost, and what would it cost? And the person came back to him and says, it'd be crazy. It would quadruple the cost of the genes. And he said, so let's do it. And the genes went from costing him a dollar a pair to four dollars a pair. And the community in Madagascar was transformed by a person who lives in New York City but has just thought differently about the character of what his life is like. To be repairer of broken walls, to be restorers of streets with dwellings on them. You see, that's what God invites us into, is to be involved in something that is bigger than just simply getting enough money to make sure that we've got stuff for us. God calls on us to restore communities. Please go back and read Isaiah 54, 55, 56, 57, 58, 59, 60, and 61. And ask yourself this question, what conditions like that do I see in my world that Jesus actually is calling me to. The second element of it, and that is that God calls us to spend ourselves. If you look at chapter 58, look at verse, look at verse 10. And if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. You see, God invites us, he actually calls us to spend ourselves, each one of us, each one of us. You see, this restoration of communities isn't something that pastors are supposed to do. We can't even do it, actually. We don't get to. The job I have, the role I have, is to equip people to do that. And what has happened in our environment where everybody thinks that the most important thing is what happens in church, the most transformative thing is what happens when you all get together here and the professionals talk for 30, 35 minutes. What has happened here? The reality is, is what happens in the world happens because of what you do. I had a conversation with a gentleman who had been working for years, and he was working for Toyota in another part of the United States. And I asked him, what do you do? And he says, well, I work on the soundproofing in Toyota cars. 
And uh, so we try to improve it, make them, uh, improve it, make them quieter for the people that buy Toyotas. And I said, you know, that's so interesting. We're about to do a series. We're going to do it in the fall. On what does God think of my work? And we're going to do that in September. What does God think of my work? And I said, how do you see what you do connecting with things that matter to God? And you know what he said to me? He paused. He, he struggled with it. And he said, well, I suppose that... W- I help people ride in cars that don't squeak. He didn't quite say that. Ride in cars to church on Sundays. That was the substance of what he thought his value was for the kingdom of God. I actually get to help them to get to work on Sundays. And do you see how inferior that is to what God calls us to? And the sense of, it's all about church. It is, it is not. This is important, and I want you to come back next week. But it's all about what God calls you to do as something he will call your vocation. There's a difference between a career and a vocation. A career is a job. Vocation actually comes from the Latin word for calling. And some of you have a calling right now, and it's to be on a baseball team or soccer team, or to be a student, or to, be, to, to care for a needy person in your family who's going through rough times, or to nurture kids, or to do something in the community for the good of the community. All of us have a calling, a vocation. And God invites us to spend ourselves being involved in doing it. How will you spend your life? How will you spend your life? One more example, we'll get to the last point and walk out of here. My um, daughter in Seattle Pacific was a part of a graduating class, and she was in the global development department. And there are all of these really, really sharp, talented young people, who, some of whom got awards in global development. And Mary says, yeah, that person's really sharp. That, that person, she was just talking about all of these students You know what else I learned? That when you graduate from a global development degree, you can actually get a job making less than you would make manning. No kidding. So parents had just spent, and Meredith, just spent four years getting an education for her, tens of thousands of dollars, and she's now got a job at $12 an hour. Seattle, the minimum wage is $15. And you say, that's crazy. And I would say, no, it isn't. Because I don't know who is telling us what matters most in regards to what we do for a job. But if you and I could have a job where we could actually transform the trajectory of people's lives and their families for generations to come, I think some of us would want to pay to do that. Do you see, what is it in our calculus where we say, I've got to get a job that pays me really well? When the kingdom of God says to us, I want a vocation that transforms broken places. And the value isn't the paycheck I bring home, it's the change in society that occurs. You see, this is what God calls us to. And you know why he calls it to us to it? 
because we're filled with joy and rejoicing as we do things like that. So what part of your job, your vocation, can actually be leveraged for things more significant than simply what the label says on your shirt or over your office? And it brings us to this uh, third piece of it, what our, what our identity is about. Before we get there, just say one, one thing. You see in verse, in, in verse 10 of uh, chapter 61, it says, he has clothed me, clothed me with salvation. That's not personal salvation. He's putting, he's putting a robe on me of salvation. Uh, now, the person referred to there is already saved. He's already come to faith in Christ. This is not about personal salvation. This is about a person's identity. When someone wears a robe of salvation, they don't wear it to keep warm. They wear it to indicate who they are and what they do. We wear robes of salvation because we walk into communities where salvation is needed. And we walk into those places and we restore broken walls and we repair streets with dwellings on them. And that's what it means for us to walk around with a robe of salvation. That is my vocation. My vocation is to be a person that brings the character of God into a place. And the result of that is that I experience gladness and the place experiences gladness as well. Getting a little long here, I see that. I want to just share one more story and then talk about application. When uh, we, we were raising our kids, um, we'd have birthday parties. Everybody was having birthday parties. You have birthday parties for your kids. And one of the trends when our kids were young was that parents would not only provide presents for the kid who was having the birthday, but to provide, provide presents for the siblings as well. Have any of you ever heard that kind of a thing? You, 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 do, you give your you know, one daughter a present, happy birthday, Kate, and then Audrey gets one and Meredith gets one. So there's nobody getting jealous. And, and my mom said to us, I would never do that. I would never do that. I, I, I give one child the best possible gift I can, and then I encourage the rest of you to celebrate what was happening for them. Change everything. Kids weren't happy about it, but it changed everything. <laughs> Say, oh, aren't we excited? Look what Kate got. And the kids would just have to reconfigure what matters and say, yeah, that's wonderful. Well, Jesus invites us into the same thing. That we actually get to be excited about what happens in places where the streets are broken and the dwellings are broken down and find joy in that. So what does it mean? It means this. And you can take out your, your uh, uh, um, comment card and w- the, the part where it says, what, what's God saying to me? God encourages us to change the places we are. Uh, what is your vocation, first of all? I'd like you to just note that. What is your calling? Not your job, not your job title. What is your vocation? What is your calling as a follower of Jesus in the place you're in? It might be in high school. It might be in junior high. It might be in your neighborhood. It might be in your family. It might be, it might be in your business place. What is your calling from God? That's the, that's the first question. That's what we've got to figure out. What is my vocation? And the second thing is, is how will I change the culture of that place? How will I change the culture of that place? 
To bring people to life in Christ, which is our vision statement, means we will bring life to people. To bring people to life in Christ means we will bring life to people. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for this wonderful calling you give to us to be involved in something purposeful. Purposeful that mean, matters to us and that matters to you and that matters to the world we live in. And Lord, you are a good, good Father. I pray that we would know it and the people that live around us would know it as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.